0: What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off The Cuff. You might know me as the guy from The Basement Yard, Vine, The Priori Podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off The Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff.
1: Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and today I am joined by a former Army captain, former Missouri Secretary of State, and also an author, Mr. Jason Kander. Jason, how are you, sir?
2: Pretty good. Thanks for having me.
1: I appreciate it. Listen, so first question that I really wanted to ask you was what did Obama smell like?
2: <laughs> Success. No, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> uh.
1: What uh, made you join the military?
2: I grew up in a public service oriented household, but not like a military family or anything like that. So, I think there were a lot of things. I mean, part of it was just I I'd always admired service, and I, you know, thought of it as one day I might do that. But I don't know that I was. I think it's about a fifty percent chance I was on track to do that. Had nine eleven not happened, and then nine eleven did happen, and so to me it was like I was, you know, when nine eleven happened, I was I was twenty years old, and it just felt to me like, well, I'm twenty, my country's going to war. This was before Iraq or anything like that. You know, it was it was about. Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda. And, and it was truly at that point about the people who had attacked us. And even if it hadn't been, I still felt like, you know, other men and women my age are going to go like, who am I to not go? And I also, it just, you know, was a person who I, I I'd grown up pretty privileged and just felt like, what have I done to earn any of this? And so I, I think there was a part of me that wanted to give back. And then of course there's the, the more pedestrian stuff. Like, you know, I grown up here in the middle of the country with a certain belief about what America stood for. And I wanted to be a part of that. And it's not necessarily the same, you know, I don't, I don't unfortunately have the same idealistic view now. I'm not cynical by any means, but you know, I was, I was more idealistic then. And then I guess the last part is like, I was born in 1981. I grew up on iron Eagle and Top Gun and, you know, yeah, yeah. I think that's a part of it too. Right. Like the, yeah, yeah, for sure. Those were the heroes of movies for me growing up, you know?
1: What was life like growing up in Kansas?
2: I grew up in Shawnee, Kansas, which is, it's a suburb of Kansas City. So, you know, if you're familiar with Kansas City, it's, it's a metro area, right? So, so I grew up like right near state line. My family had all been from the Missouri side, but so I grew up over on the Kansas side. And what was it like growing up? You know, pretty great. I mean, I had a pretty great upbringing. Uh, my parents were former juvenile probation officers. That's how they had met. My dad was also a former police officer, but so they had more of a working class professional background, but you know, my dad also, he ended up owning his own private security company. They had that, but then all the advantages of the fact that my family, we weren't like a working class family. So I had access. Now I can look back and understand. I didn't know this as a kid that we had access to things that, you know, most kids of, of cops and juvenile probation officers don't have. So I was super fortunate that we could go on vacation once a year. And my parents were able to take in these other kids who were friends of mine, whose families were struggling. And so they became, you know, my younger brother and I was what we call unofficial foster brothers. So we were able to have these things in our life, which, so we were super fortunate as a result. And there were no great challenges. There was nothing like, there was no decision a politician could make that was going to take food off, off our table. But the upbringing that I got was, or the message I got growing up was just sort of, Hey, we are fortunate. And that's why when you have an opportunity to help people, you will. And they demonstrated that example by helping, you know, the boys who became my my unofficial foster brothers and remain my closest among my closest friends to this day, and brothers. And then, you know, like I grew up, the most challenging stuff for me was like baseball games and debate tournaments, which is not adversity. <laughs> it, yeah, you know, so I, I had a great upbringing.
1: That's awesome. So I always ask, what made you choose the army over different branches of the
2: military? Ah, uh, yeah, it's a great question. At that moment, you know, post nine eleven, I wanted to get in and feel like I was making a contribution right away. And I remember thinking, well, here I am, I'm, I'm finishing college. I'm going to go to law school. I'm planning to initially do this at least as a reservist, I'll, you know, get activated, I'm sure. But so then I looked at things like the idea of going and becoming a pilot. I was like, well, that's like a year of training. Like if I go to the there, it's like, it's, it's like a year, year and a half before I could even feel like, because remember I was joining because I was thinking like Osama bin Laden and you know Al Qaeda attacked us and like I wanted to be in a position right away where like I felt I was doing something about that and I was like well if I go become like a bomber pilot that's like a year and a half two years before I can feel like I'm a part of this at all like after I get my commission after I go through the initial training so, which is years by itself and then I was like all right and then I remember I looked. So that basically narrowed it down for me to Army and Marines, because I had also looked at like a Naval intelligence program that was like a part-time training deal. But I looked at it and I was like, it doesn't feel like they're going to send me where I think, where I really feel like the rubber meets the road and what's going to be this war. So I remember look, looking at that and going, I don't think that's for me. And then with the Marines, they I remember looking at it and they didn't have like really any training or reserve options that would allow me to I didn't feel that would allow me to also, you know, finish school, go to, that kind of thing. And then when I found out about the army having these RTC scholarships where you could you could come out and you could get a commission in the army reserve, that made a lot of sense to me because I was like, okay, I can get a commission in the army reserve. I can volunteer to go active duty right away, but I won't be committing to like a 6-year active duty career. I kind of was in this headspace where I was like, I want to do active duty. I want to do active duty in the war. And I just, I wasn't, yeah, that's,
1: that's crazy.
2: Well, I just didn't have a great, yeah. I, I was not at a point where I was like, I want to have a, a full-time military career as my career. I, to be honest, like part of me was, cause I loved it once I got in, but it was more like, you know, I was already engaged. That was not what my wife wanted. My fiance at the time wanted, you know, we've been together since we're 17. So it feels weird to say anything. Yeah. Like right. About yeah. My wife, but so, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but basically what it came down to is I looked at it and I was like, okay, that seems to be the option where I can quote unquote, you know, for lack of a better term, get into the fight the fastest in a way that also doesn't obligate me to then spend a bunch of time, you know, not going to do the other things that I want to do in my life afterwards.
1: Yes. So you said after obviously 9-11, you felt kind of indebted to America a little bit, Right for lack yeah, of a better word. Yeah, sure.
2: I had, and I had felt that way prior to that. I just, I was just kind of like, what have I ever done for yeah. all the things that, you know, I have all the opportunities that I have here. Do you still feel that way now? I don't feel indebted now. No, that's one of the big things that I worked through in therapy was, and and initially it was like, I, you know, I, I wanted to serve, I wanted to give back. But then after my deployment and after, particularly after my deployment uh, and, you know, Sustaining a trauma, I took on what a lot of trauma survivors take on, which was a sense of inadequacy and irredeemability. You know, this sense that like I hadn't done enough. I mean, it was just this constant refrain because I had friends who had been hurt physically. I had, I had plenty of friends who had been overseas longer than me, you know, many friends who had. And so I had this real, this way beyond inferiority complex is like way too light a term. I just, you know, survivor's guilt is part of it. But so I had this real sense that I had not done enough and it drove me for a very long time. And what I realize now is that I actually have done quite a lot and I have done enough. Doesn't mean I'm not going to do more for my country, but it won't be because I feel I have to, or I owe it. It'll be because that's what I want to do.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, as the episode progresses, people will know, but you know, I, I have your resume here and it's like, I could barely vote sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, uh, make sure you get down there before they close to cast your ballot. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. and then like I salute and then like I go home. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for someone like you, especially dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, when you got your diagnosis, how did you feel initially about who you were internally and then how people were gonna, you know, view you externally?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. When I was diagnosed with PTSD it happened after me really coming to terms with the idea that I had PTSD. So when I was finally diagnosed, you know, I had spent almost 11 years being like, that's not what this is. And then that became like, it's not what this is. I didn't earn that. So there's just something wrong with me. I'm just this way. And then it was very hard and very difficult for me to accept the idea that this was PTSD. So then after I'd gone through that, then to be diagnosed, was validating for me. It didn't fix anything, but it did give me some sense of validation. Like to have a clinician at the VA, you know, multiple clinicians talk to me and say, like, yeah, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of it was a validation, but I think even more than the validation that it provided to me was the clarity, you know, the, the idea of like, because once you say like, okay, that for sure that's what this is, then Does feel a little like okay, so now I know what to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do, but these these people at the VA seem to know what to do, and and now I know at least what it is, and that means that that gives me some clarity about how to proceed, as opposed to you know spending eleven years being like this is what I'm like, or I don't know what's wrong with me, or what do I do about this. So that didn't really do anything major for my mental health, but it did at least give me the clarity of like, okay, there's a path.
1: Yeah. It's kind of a, gives you a point of like, all right, so how do we approach this thing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like when I got diagnosed with bipolar, it was like the biggest relief in the world because I just didn't know what was going on. So they were trying to figure out, I just kept trying to figure it out. I kept going to like hospitals and getting checked out thinking I was having a heart attack or I had a stroke or, you know, it was just constant. So once I was able to put something, a name to it, it helped ease my mind a little bit. Like you said, it didn't make anything easier. Right. But at least it was like, for me, I have a chance to actually like, all right, so let's do some research on this and kind of learn the ins and outs of it.
2: And it's like one last thing to worry about, right? Because now at least you can check off what the hell is going on with me as like, okay, well, I answered that. I don't know what to do about it yet, but at least I I know what the enemy is. And then to your other part of your question about like, how I felt about how people reacted to it. That was very strange for me because particularly being a, and I think whether you're a public person or not, there's some large element of this in your life as a public person. And now this was like the thing that like, even if it wasn't what everybody knew me for anybody who knew of me knew this, it seemed like, right. So, so you go into the grocery store and you've been having a day where you're doing pretty fine. Like you're doing all right. Like it, this, it, you're having an okay day. And then like people feel like, because I put out in the world that I had suicidal thoughts. And that was part of why I stepped back from everything. Like people feel like they've got to be the one to keep you from killing yourself. And so like, you're just having a day, like you're just like picking out avocados and people are like, hey, the world is a better place because you're in it. And it's like, and then you feel like you're consoling them. So that was strange. And then the other part of it is like, as i started to make progress in therapy and i started to be able to really notice and tell that i was achieving things i was making real progress that i was doing better the rest of the world didn't know that and i had vanished i spent like 8 or 10 months out of the public eye so the last thing that the rest of the world had heard about me was you know when i was at my lowest and so then when when there would be news reports that would reference me or i would see people you know like on TV referencing me for whatever reason, it would be a reminder that like, oh, they only know where I left off publicly. They don't know where I am. And sometimes that can seep into you. Like even now, as I was preparing for the book tour, you know, I'm working with the public relations folks and we're going through like old clips of interviews and you know stuff they can use to put out there. Right. It caused me to like, I needed to go out. I needed to go watch the way I was perceived and reported on then And it can kind of seep in and you like, it can make you feel like you're the person they're talking about when, you know, like you're not that person anymore. And so I think that was hard. Like a buddy of mine, Ruben Gallego, who's a a member of Congress from Arizona and a a Marine combat vet who he's one of the only other people in political public life who have been, you know, like public about their PTSD. You know, he, he said to me at one point, he was like, yeah, man, because I was telling, I was relaying all this. I was like, I feel like I'm doing better, but like, I feel like there's so much like sympathy being pointed toward me that I can feel that it makes me feel very strange. And he was like, yeah, because like, you're just like going about your day, you're working out, you're going to therapy, you're like taking care of your kids. He goes, and the world thinks you're like in the corner, you know, in a fetal position with an M16. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's very strange. I'm with you. He's like, you just got to ignore it. And it was good advice, but
1: Well, the other thing, too, it's like, especially if you're thinking of running for public office or, you know, you don't want people to vote for you because they feel sorry for you. You want people to vote for you because you're the best possible candidate.
2: Well, I haven't been thinking about running for public office really in any real way for a few years. And I'll be honest, like, I don't think anybody would ever vote for you because, like, I don't think that's not something I would worry about because good or bad people don't vote for anybody cuz they feel sorry for them because people just don't feel sorry for politicians ever but i will say it just doesn't feel good to have like people feeling sorry for you like so you take the political part out of it and just feeling like people feel sorry for you makes you feel like there must be something to be feeling sorry for you about and it can really impede your sense of like accomplishment and success of where you're where you're getting in your mental health
1: do you have any regrets about your deployments
2: No, I don't. I think that makes, sometimes it's confusing for people. Like, I don't regret being in the army. I don't regret deploying to Afghanistan. I don't have antipathy toward the army for it, which I think surprises people. I have things that I think should be done different and that I want done different in terms of the way the military handles PTSD, the way veterans are cared for. And I work on those things and I advocate for those things. But being somebody who is a veteran and you know, still thinks of himself as a soldier in a lot of ways, is is a big part of who I am. And the army remains a big part of my life, even though I'm not in it. You know, I mean I work what I do for a living is I I am taking national, an organization that is in the veterans' homelessness and veteran suicide space. So like it's a big part of my life and a big part of my identity. You know, I wish there were things that looking back, it would be better if there were things that were done differently, if the army had educated myself and others about what we might deal with, had done things differently. But I, like, I don't fault the army for teaching me or indoctrinating me right out of the gate, just like they do with anybody else that, hey, what you're doing is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because that's what equipped me to be able to go and do my job. If I thought that what I was doing was re- really scary and really remarkable in a way that would cause me problems in the future, like, I don't think I could have done it. And I thought the job was important. I do fault the army and continue to for not having a way to flip that switch off when people leave so that they understand that they might need help and that it's not the case that what they did was no big deal. But I don't have any antipathy toward them and I don't, I don't regret it. You know, yeah, I have to manage PTSD, but like the training I got from the army, the experience I got from the army also in many ways made me better at so many things, including, I mean, important things to me, like being a father, but, and it's just who I am, man. Like, I don't know. It's like, I wouldn't change who I am
1: does the military have any type of like decompression program? Like for lack of a better word, like a halfway house.
2: Yeah. They have programs. They've gotten better about it, but they need to be so much better because they offer these things. But when you're 20 something years old and you're separating from the military, you don't even see yourself as a veteran yet. Like you're not going to see yourself as a veteran for years. If you do see yourself as a veteran, right? Like, and at that point you're like I'm ready to move on to the next thing. So like if they put you in a position where it's like hey check this this and this and it's like they'll interview you all that like at that point you're going like all right if I flag for any of this stuff like then I may not be able to move on and do the next thing and I, and and also you're you're wondering what it'll mean for your employment prospects when you switch from one base to another in the army I got to say you you know you get transferred from Fort Leonard Wood to Fort Gordon there's a readiness sergeant at Fort Leonardwood, who is waiting to hear from a readiness sergeant at Fort Gordon to say, like, Hey, we got him or we got her. And they go, okay, good. They've been handed off. I don't need to right. take that person off my books. But when you get out, they know where you're going. They know where your hometown is, but they don't have that relationship with the VA and they should, like it should be like the last order you're given is you need to go enroll at the VA in your hometown. And there should be somebody at the VA who's tasked with reporting back to your last duty station, hey, we got him, warm handoff. They don't do that. And the other thing that they don't do that should change is when you go in, there's no real education on what PTSD is, how it presents, why it might present. And the problem with that is that if you arm soldiers and service members generally with that sort of knowledge, they'll employ it. They'll employ it not just to be able to take a look at themselves and say, well, maybe I need to address this, But also to be able to see it in their in their battle buddies to their left and right. And we don't really do that. And I can tell you that for PTSD therapy at the VA, like there was a few different things I did, but one of them, cognitive processing therapy, a big part of it was really just my therapist being almost like a lecturer and just teaching me about PTSD, which was enormously helpful to me. But I feel like if that part were done in basic training, I think that would make a huge difference.
1: So just the um Expand on that a little bit. When it comes to the way that you see America treats their soldiers when they come back, they're veterans, right? You know, you see people like Jon Stewart, who are, you know, very, very adamant about, you know, trying to make sure that veterans are taken care of. Has anything or will anything change in terms of healthcare for veterans in the next five years, do you think?
2: I hope so. Well, first, we should acknowledge there are ways in which things have gotten better. It took a lot of cajoling and arm twisting that it shouldn't have taken, but the burn pits bill did pass. Before that, you have changes that have been made where there are at least some services where people with any discharge other than honorable can get access to. There's, there's some of that. It's not enough. But the central flaw in the way that we care for veterans, I think, is one that is not known to most people, which is that there's a lot of people, a lot of people who served in the United States military and who can't go to the VA. They can't get any service at the VA because the federal government doesn't consider them a veteran. Most people assume that if you were in the in the military, you you can go to the VA. That's part of the deal, part of the benefits. It's not the case. Like if you were never deployed, if you were never activated for long enough, if you, you know, if you have a certain kind of discharge, there's all sorts of ways in which people fall out of the system and it's actually really common and then because the central question this is really the biggest flaw the central question in washington around veterans issues seems to regularly be how do we tailor this whatever this new thing we're doing is how do we tailor it in such a way that only the people who deserve it get it the problem with that is is that you're working off the assumption that there are veterans who don't deserve it and i just don't get that like if you were a maryland national guard member and you were mobilized to protect the capital for five months after 9/11, but you never deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, and that five months is the you know, other than your initial entry training is the longest consistent active duty period you did, and then you get out. Federal government doesn't consider you a veteran, and you know that's just one example, and that's because there are people who are like, well, I don't think we should extend this to this person. Now they don't want to spend money on it, as John Stewart has pointed out. They got no trouble, you know, spending the money to send those people to the capital in the first place, or spending the money to send people to war, send you know all that stuff. But then they get much more skeptical and much more exclusive when it comes to taking care of the people who either went to or would have gone on those deployments. And that doesn't make any sense. And so I, the thing we don't talk about enough is that there's this constant vigilance about making sure that people who don't deserve it don't get access to these benefits. And the problem with that is it begins with the premise that there are veterans who don't deserve veterans benefits. And that's, doesn't make any sense to me.
1: See, you know, as, as an outsider looking in who's had friends who have been in the military, but never myself, I always would have conversations with them, whether we were just like hanging out, like having a beer, I'd just be like, dude, you guys shouldn't have to pay for shit ever.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Like, it just doesn't really make any sense to me. And they're like, well, you know, it's like, kind of like this. I'm like, It just doesn't make sense. Like you were just, you were in the desert like a year ago. and like, and now you have to like come back and like be a substitute teacher, like this bullshit. Like you don't want to do that. Shouldn't have to do anything.
2: Well, you know, the veterans who get access to them, which is a lot, there are a lot of good benefits. Right. And, And I don't think there are some people who think that like people who serve their country should be exalted, like the special status. Like, no, like, I mean, we return to civilian life, like we're going to be civilians. You, you got the GI Bill. There are a lot of great benefits, but certainly VA healthcare, right? It's not just that you shouldn't have to, because you served your country, you shouldn't have to deal with Figuring out how much to pay for insurance and where to get your medical care. I do think that that should be one of the benefits, and that's t- that the system is intended to do. But what a lot of people don't realize is is that one of the great strengths of VA healthcare is that you are getting your healthcare from people who exclusively serve people in your former line of work. Which mm-hmm. means, I'll give you an example. Like, obviously, there's the mental health side, right? Like, that's the most obvious example. Like, I as a combat veteran of PTSD, when I went to the VA PTSD clinic, there was no way I was ever going to say anything to my therapist and they were going to be like, well, that's weird. Never heard that. Like that wasn't going to happen. And that's, a, that's an advantage of it, but there's other stuff. You know, I've gone there for, you know, when I, I have some knee issues, I've gone there for stuff with my lower back or my shoulder, you know, and if I go to a regular you know, orthopedic physician for that stuff, you know, they're going to look at it like they would any other joint of that type. But when yeah. you go to the VA, they're able to look at it and go, "Okay, well, it's your it's your L four L five. You were army. Okay, you you carried a pack that weighed this. You know that's the difference." And so, right, right. So that's that's where I really do think that we need to recognize that, like, okay, a guy who got three DUIs, one DUI between each of his four combat deployments, and ended up with you know a dishonorable discharge as a result, we need to recognize that guy or gal was self medicating from PTSD. And to say that they're never going to be able to go to the VA for their health care is, is ridiculous. First of all, they, they serve their country. If you commit murder and you go to prison for 40 years and then you get out, nobody is arguing that you shouldn't get Medicare, right? When you turn 65, why yeah. are we saying that the guy who served his country or gal who served their country and then made a mistake even a grievous one, just like the person who spent 40 years in prison for something they committed on the civilian side. Why are we saying that they no longer count as a veteran? That doesn't make sense to me because they did serve their country.
1: So yeah. And that's the other thing too. It's like, I would say the same thing to my friends. I was like, you guys should be able to like walk into a dentist's office and never have to worry about like getting your teeth fixed. Or like you know, just like like small things. It yeah, just like we make should sense. make
2: it so that all veteran, not all veterans get dental benefits to the VA, in, including even people who are fully VA eligible. It was just you know, so yeah.
1: It's just the hardest thing for me to understand is that. Listen, it's like, are we all like civilians at the end of the day? Yeah, like when you guys come home, if it, if you know you're blessed enough to come home, you know people don't come home from over there. You know, it's you got people that lose their lives over there, and then you know you got to come back with post traumatic stress disorder. And like, then you got, you, you got to worry about getting your teeth cleaned. It doesn't make any sense.
2: Well, there's a broader question here to be asked, which is, should any American really have to worry about getting their teeth cleaned? Should any, oh, Ameri- yeah, you know, a- like, should any American have to worry about paying for their health care? And like, personally, to me, the answer is no, because we're the wealthiest nation in human history. And like, what's the point in being the wealthiest nation in human history if you can't use it to make sure that like health care is a human right?
1: For sure. And then that's the other thing too. It's, um, that's some of my biggest beef with taxes is that I always wish that whenever I pay taxes, they sent you a little pamphlet <laughs> that says 30 cents went here, a dollar went here.
2: There's some local entities that do that. And I think it's a very effective and very worthwhile thing to do.
1: You know, I just feel like, you know, us as Americans, right? I w- have no problem paying extra money a month so everybody can get
2: their teeth fixed. Yeah. When you pay for something, you should get a receipt.
1: Yeah. You should get a receipt.
2: Like, mm-hmm. you know, just, don't that. just
1: tell me, don't just tell me it's going to this, that, and that. I want to see it. Yeah. Especially if you're taking half of my stuff.
2: Yeah. yeah. It makes sense.
1: Let's uh, fast forward just a, a little bit. And before we do that, I just want to ask one question. When you were young, do you think that you felt that you had any type of mental health issues?
2: No, uh-uh. I didn't.
1: Yeah. From what you said, it's like your upbringing, you know, you're, you're blessed to have it. And, you know, you felt like you had to do something after nine eleven, which is just a super brave thing to do. Like, you know, my cousin was killed in the nine eleven attacks.
2: Yeah, oh, geez. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. She was on uh, the 82nd floor after the second plane hit. Wow. Yeah. So uh, her phone call was used like in all the movies and stuff. Melissa Doyle is her name. So, you know, it's for me, I was 13 mm-hmm. when it happened. And now it's, you know, you really think about it in that moment, even at 13, I wanted to do something about it.
2: Sure. A lot of people did.
1: And to see that, you know, so many people acted on that and went over there, it's a very admirable thing. Like, you know, it's, I feel like thank you for your service is like kind of like a cliche that gets like thrown around. But I feel like if you have the opportunity to say it to somebody, I feel like you should, because, you know, it's at least, you know, from a civilian standpoint and not a, political standpoint it's i see you mm-hmm. i recognize what you did you know mm-hmm. and, and what you sacrificed. I, th- I think a lot of people get lost kind of in the rat race of like what we're fighting for mm-hmm. and what we're trying to accomplish but there's still human beings over there
2: yeah no look i i i appreciate it and i guess with all thank you for your service thing like if anything i just like to see it offered more broadly like i i think teachers, it should be more than just an applause line for politicians. Like, I think like when people find out that you're a teacher, it should be culturally very normal for people to be like, Oh, thanks for your service. Thanks for which, you know, and I think also it would be a good thing if we lifted up, you know, peace Corps volunteers and people in the diplomatic corps and stuff like that at the same level or close to the same level as people who serve in the military. We, we have sort of gotten to this place where we think that if you don't wear a uniform, you know, as a country, we kind of think if you don't wear a uniform, it doesn't really count as service. And right. which is why strangely, like on July 4th, you have baseball teams wearing camo versions of their uniform and like how we've now gotten, you know, like digicam, you know, desert style yeah. combat uniforms somehow have become synonymous with patriotism. And I, I don't really understand how that happened. I don't think it's good. And so I think that's part of it, but also with regard to what happened after nine eleven. There were a lot of people who decided to serve, but there were a much larger group that wanted to find some way to serve. And I feel like we missed an opportunity there. I mean, when I think back about President George W. Bush saying that what people should do is they should go shop because it'll help the economy, okay, that's fine. But that was an opportunity to be like, you know, volunteer in your community and, and buy war bonds and don't cash them in. Like you could have issued those and said, like, this is, we're going we're gonna to pay for the war this way, you know, which is closer to what happened after after Pearl Harbor, there were things that could be done. And I think that we had a generation there that was interested in being called to serve. And I think it hurt us in the long run that the instinct of of many of our political leaders in that moment was instead of calling our nation to reach a, a real cause that whether it was to fight the bad guys or just to become a better country, instead their instinct was to try and Assuage people's fears that they might be asked to do anything, and I think that that has settled into our culture in a way where it's become really embedded, and it's sort of everybody seems to be having this contest politically of what are they going to do to tell you that it's none of it's your responsibility, and it's somebody else's fault, and here's what we're going to do about that for you, as opposed to yeah, like we could be doing more as a people and here's where how you can get involved. I think we that was the moment where we really missed an opportunity and I think it hurt us long-term.
1: I think, and obviously even then, even as a kid, as a young teenager, I feel like patriotism was at an all-time high after- non-11. It was a
2: moment when, people, when a lot could have been done. I mean, you could have expanded the Peace Corps 10 times over, which would be, by the way, an extremely valuable way to help prevent future wars. I mean- it's not good that there are a lot of places around the world where the image of America is a soldier with a rifle, like mm. it's not that soldier's fault, but it is the fault of a policy that said like we're going to send people in for this, but we're not going to send in people who are going to help the world build and help the you know what I mean so
1: yeah, for sure,
2: I think that was a real mischance
1: How do you feel? Just in terms of, because I want to get into your book before I let you go. But how do you feel America is doing in terms of just in terms of foreign affairs, right? In the way that we're handling ourselves in terms of how um, you know we're handling you know Israel and Palestine. And the reason I ask is because there's a lot of domestic focus that needs to happen, right? But is there a way for Americans to finally get a grasp on? Why we help so many other people out before we help ourselves. What is
2: the case for foreign aid, right? And I would make two, I would make two cases for foreign aid. One is, I think we would like to be a moral nation. And if you are a moral nation, just like if you are a moral person, you know, you help others, like you help others because you have the capacity to do it. Right. I'll give you an example, which is, you know, several years ago when there was, I think it was a major earthquake in Pakistan. We didn't have an enormous national interest in sending the military in there to help conduct search and rescue operations, but it was definitely the right thing to do. And I can tell you that there were probably a lot of people, I assume there was a lot of Air Force Pararescue, for instance, who I bet if you point to, if you ask them what was some of the best stuff you did in the military, I bet a lot of them would talk about that, the ones who were there. So there's there's the basic moral point of like, you know. It's what you do for other human beings. We have a tendency in our in our discussion of world affairs, my friend Ben Rhodes pointed this out to me not long ago, and I thought it was a great point. We have a tendency to act as if the only human beings on the planet are Americans and everybody mm-hmm. outside of the country doesn't count. And I don't think that's right. I don't think it's good for our like soul as a nation to do that. But then the other reason, if you want a reason as to how does it serve our interest, it's that It's an enormously small part of our budget, actually. Like, particularly if you compare it to like our defense budget, but it's an enormously small part of our our budget. Like, like nominal, and it makes the world a more secure place. Like, I remember being in intelligence school and having a guy who had just come back from—I don't remember if he had just come back from Iraq or Afghanistan—but he was an intelligence officer and he was giving us like a primer on on at that point. The terrorist cells that you would fight overseas. And he was explaining, like, you know, look, here's this guy, here's the bomb maker. This guy, here's the trigger man. This guy, here's, you know, he's just sort of a foot soldier in it. Like he, he drives them there and he, you know, pulls security for them and whatever. And then this guy, here's the financer, right, of the thing. And it's like, he was like, okay, if you were to be able to make it so that the bomb maker had a way to earn a living that wasn't this. Maybe he does it. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's so bought in to his sort of. Maybe he's so radicalized that it's not going to happen. But maybe he's like, screw this. I'm not risking getting killed. I'm going to go take this good job. He's like, but I promise you, this guy here who's who's just driving the getaway vehicle or whatever he's doing and pulling security is just foot soldier. He's like, that dude. A lot of this is he doesn't have a job. His family needs him to earn, and he mm-hmm. has no honor because he has no job. He's like, you want to? He said half of taking this terrorist cell off the board is just getting a couple of people a job. So if you think about like how do nations or rogue groups become so able to recruit and radicalize people, in many cases to destabilize parts of the world, including become a threat to our security, a lot of the time it's because of economic insecurity. And so I think there's a very good argument to be made for spending a lot more on foreign aid in order to just make sure that people have a way to feed their family because it makes them a lot less likely to be vulnerable to being pulled into things that are not in our national interest for them to be pulled into.
1: No, that's a great. No, no that was a great point. I'm going to ask a very baseline question. It might sure. even be more broad. But if you had to give American politics across the board a letter grade, like in school, right now, how are we doing?
2: Right now, like in terms of our, how are we functioning as yes. like our political system? Not like. I'm not grading the people in charge right now. I'm just grading the functionality of our national, of our political system. Yes. We're at a D right now. And we're in in real danger of going toward an F. That's
1: a bummer. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, (laughs) it it can
2: change. It can, I mean, we know like, that's the thing. Like we know what we need to do to change. What I worry about is whether we will. I mean, usually American democracy. If you look at the course of our history, there's about every 50 years, there's some sort of reboot to make sure that the process is still working the way it's supposed to, right? And we're like 50 years overdue for one. We've like missed the last one for a long time, right? Like about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, primaries were introduced mostly at the local level to make it so that people were part of the process. Again, it was a reform. It was a pro-democracy reform because what was happening was is a few people in back rooms were figuring out who the nominees were and then the general election wasn't mattering. This is like Tammany Hall, stuff like that. So primaries were a way to bring people back into the process. Well, over time, what has happened is that politicians, by the nature of politics, have figured out how to make that work for them and how to make it so that they can consolidate power, not diffuse power and have it be accessible by people. And so that needs a reboot, right? that's why things like ranked choice voting make a lot of sense. But then other things like the fact that the Voting Rights Act expired and hasn't been renewed makes it far too easy. To suppress the votes of particularly people of color. And that is completely messing up our democracy. And you've got problems like gerrymandering, where we are creating a system, particularly in Congress, but also at the state legislative level in many cases, where the incentive structure doesn't lend toward working together. The incentive structure lends toward fighting each other. So that process needs to be retooled. So there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of functional problems that we know how to solve. Do you feel the male?
1: The mail-in votes, do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing for America?
2: I think mail-in voting is is a great thing.
1: I think it's awesome. Especially for someone like me. Like I said it before, like it's hard for me to just even get down there sometimes.
2: Well, think about the world we live in now. Like, if there's a product that you want, you know that unless it is particularly exotic, that you can pull out the device in your pocket and within 30 seconds you will find it, you will swipe your thumb. And there's a very strong chance it will show up on your doorstep tomorrow. In some cases, it may show up later today, depending on where you live.
1: Oh, yeah. I live in New York City. I could get a baby giraffe right now if I wanted to in, in about an hour and a half. Yeah.
2: And that is the level of customer service and system interaction that Americans are quickly becoming accustomed to. So to say that the most important thing we do in this country, which is voting, choosing our leaders. Has to be a system where you need to carve out, in some cases, six hours of your day to go stand in line to do. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. People have a certain customer service expectation, and the only reason not to meet it is a nefarious one. I mean, because we have the means, we have the means to meet it. The only reason that, you know, (laughs) the only reason to oppose things that make it easier to vote. Is because you don't want people to vote, like, and that's yes. not a good reason. And then you know they'll claim things like, "Oh well, fraud this and that," but it's all, it's all bull. I mean, it's like, you know, Oregon is a state that has same day registration. It has basically mail in voting, you know, where you can get your ballot and you can drop it off at a ballot. And so it has it has all the stuff that we should have, and it is the most secure voting location in the country. Like it, it has. And look, there's nowhere that has like, ooh, they have a terrible fraud problem. Like that doesn't exist in America.
1: Yeah, it's proven the work.
2: Right. But like of all the, every place has a incredibly low instance of fraud, like every jurisdiction in America and Oregon has the lowest. And mm-hmm. so to a point where it's basically non-existent. So there's no argument against it. The only argument against it is, it seems to make it so that my, my side doesn't win. And that's the Republican argument.
1: Right. And then it's, you know, United States Postal Service. I mean, who else would you rather have handling it? They're, they've been around for a long time. I think they can handle it. Electoral College, fan or not a fan?
2: Not a fan. I don't mention it a lot just because it's the fourth or fifth thing on the list of stuff that has to change in our democracy, but it obviously sure. has to change. I mean, for two reasons. One, it just as the Senate is starting to do, it gives a completely untrue result as to what the people actually want. It has a tendency to do that. But the other reason is just that, look, now if you, so wait, what year were you born?
1: 89.
2: Okay. So, all right, So you didn't even vote in 2000, right? So like, let's say, well, let's take me for example, right? Like the election in 2000 was, I think it was only the second time I had ever really voted second or third, but it was the first presidential election that I I ever voted in. And person who got the most votes didn't win and then you know in 2016 the person who got the most votes didn't. So let's count it up, right? Like in my lifetime you got okay winner of the popular vote got it not in 2000, they did in 2004, right? They did in 2008, they did in 2012, they didn't in 2016, they did in 2020. So that is six elections two of which the person who got the most, most votes didn't win, which means Over 30% of the times that I've participated in a a presidential election, 33% of the times I've participated in a presidential election, the person who got the most votes didn't win the election for president. Well, that's a surefire way to get people to be like, why am I voting? Like, to just completely destroy any faith in the process.
1: For sure. And then, you know, the other thing is, too, it's would you rather win the popular vote and lose? Or win the electoral college and
2: uh, well, obviously the point of, the point of politics is to is to gain and then be able to exercise power to meet the aims the policy agenda that you have. So I think the answer is obvious.
1: And it's so crazy though. It's just like, oh hey, like we need uh, like the idea of a swing state. When I hear about swing states, it's crazy that uh, the future of our country comes down to like the same three states every time. <laughs> Way too much power, man.
2: It doesn't make sense and it's something that can be changed. And we have a tendency to look at things and say, well, it's in the constitution, so it's it's sacrosanct. And it's like, yeah, but the constitution also has this whole process where it's like, here's how you change me. So maybe yeah. maybe every word in it is not like something that can never change. Like and, and haven't you know, they revised
1: a, it? Haven't they revised it before though?
2: Well, I mean, there's literally 27 amendments to the constitution, right? So 27 yeah. times we as a country have been like, we're going to change this, you know, 17, if you don't count the 10 in the bill of rights, cause it was all done at the same time. But like, there's also, there's a thing, if people are interested in this, they should look up the national popular vote compact, which is a thing where I don't remember how many States they have left to get. But the idea is, is that if they get enough States to pass a law in their state saying that as soon as enough States pass it, that it, it'll make it so that like, once you get to that critical number, then those states will say, all of our electoral college votes automatically go to the winner of the popular vote, whether they won our state or not, which would basically make the electoral college irrelevant. And I want to say they're like four or five states away from getting that done. So if it's something people are interested in, they should look that up. I think it's just like nationalpopularvote.org.
1: How important is in-state voting? Not the the big sexy votes out there, president, vice president. How important do you feel that in-state voting is? on smaller scales, mayors, governors.
2: I mean, it's some of the most important stuff, like give you the example of secretary of state, right? Yep. The secretary of state is the, in most case, in most states, the chief election official. And with what we're going through right now, where you have Donald Trump and his party completely focused on upending American democracy and making it, you know, just a, a fight over power and, and not one that, really cares who got the most votes. They just want to make it so that they win regardless. Like look at the election for secretary of state in Arizona, where my friend Adrian Fontes, who this is a guy who he was the election authority in Maricopa County, which if you paid any attention to the 2020 election, you heard a lot about Maricopa County because it was like Mm -hmm. the pivotal county in Arizona, which was a pivotal state. He was the elected recorder, which is like the secretary of state of the county. Like He ran the election in that county. And he's the kind of guy, he's a, he's a Marine, he's so honest that it was a very close race for his re-election. He was in charge of that election and he lost and it was very close and he didn't monkey around with it. He didn't refuse to concede or anything. He brought the guy who won in and he gave him a tour of the office right away and he was like, did all sorts of turnover stuff with him and at the same time ran a very clean, very close election for president in his county. Well, that guy's running to become the Secretary of State of Arizona. He's running against a Republican candidate who is an insurrectionist, who like says that the the election was rigged and that there's all this voter fraud and that he, you know, he's one of these people who believes that the state of Arizona should have thrown out the like obviously completely correct vote totals and just given the election to Trump. Well, like, that's an example where there's all sorts of things that matter at the local level that the secretary of state does but even that that look at the difference that'll have on the national level and if you want to go back further than that the example i generally use is that the secretary who is the secretary of state in Florida in 2000 the secretary of state in Florida in 2000 was somebody who had a great interest in messing with the with the process and ended up like basically throwing that election in a lot of ways to George W Bush right well Why does that matter at an even greater level? Like, obviously, that's why the person who got the most votes didn't become president. But if you want to blow it out from there, like if you'd had a different secretary of state in Florida in 2000 who had just called balls and strikes, there would never have been a war in Iraq because George W. Bush would not have been president after 9-11. So yeah, local stuff matters. It matters because of local stuff, but it also matters because of national stuff.
1: Because I think uh, a lot of people like those are are some of the like you said, like some people like. Like, why am I even voting? But like, I feel like those votes are like the ones that get skipped over. Mm -hmm. But like, those mean a lot. Like a lot of people forget to vote in those elections.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, they're some of the most important. Absolutely. It's the stuff that, I mean, that's where you live. That's where the decisions get made about where you live.
1: The Invisible Storm. What possessed you to sit down and write this story? A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder.
2: Well, it's the book that I needed 14 years ago when I came home from Afghanistan you know, it's my journey to post-traumatic growth. And there's a lot of people out there who don't have reason to believe that post-traumatic growth is achievable. And so they don't go and get help because they figure that why would I get diagnosed with PTSD? That's not going to, that's not going to be good for my career. It's not going to be good for my life. And I think more people need to know that getting treatment really helps. And so I take people through my entire journey of fighting post-traumatic stress when I didn't realize that's what I had to fighting post-traumatic stress after I realized it and going to therapy to the point where I am now, which is a post-traumatic growth phase of my life, because I just think if this book had existed then and I'd read it, I would have gone to get help then. It's awesome.
1: Last question is: uh Would you like to just like announce your candidacy
2: right here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been waiting for this
1: show. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a big break that would be.
2: I'm enjoying my life, and I feel like I'm making a big difference in my role at you know Veterans Community Project, which is by the way where all the royalties from my royalties from invisible storm go. And, you know, I have my podcast, majority 54, which I enjoy between that and other ways to be involved. I feel like I, I have a platform and I'm able to affect what goes on in the country in a way that is just right for me right now. And I like coaching little league and playing in the national men's adult baseball league. So uh, I'm enjoying my life, man.
1: Love it. And uh, my last question that I ask everybody on every episode, are you happy today?
2: Yeah, I'm having a pretty good day today. So, thanks for asking.
1: And then, uh, is there anywhere that uh, you want to let us know where audience can find you?
2: I'm at Jason Kander on Twitter and Instagram. You can find out even more than that at JasonCander.com. You can listen to my podcast, Majority Fifty Four, and you can get the book, Invisible Storm: A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, wherever you get your books. It is, like I said, that my royalties go to the fight against veteran suicide and veteran homelessness. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty good book. It's a New York Times bestseller, and I think you'll enjoy reading it.
1: All right. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. I really appreciate it. And thanks again, and thank you for your service.
0: Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together, and you're never alone. Peace. (laughs)
2: Payment. <laughs>